Hello everyone and welcome back to this third episode of the podcast Pandemic Perspectives. I hope you're still enjoying the episodes and we're going to continue. So maybe just to recap, Talia, can you tell us what was the main takeaway from episode two? Yes, happily. So in episode two, Adrian actually talked to Vladimir Sucha, who works for the European Commission and who had a lot of really interesting points of view on the relationship between science and politics. And I think one of the main lessons of that episode is that we actually need a new breed of bilingual scientists and policymakers that are better able to navigate between the two fields of politics and science that cannot really be seen as completely distinct. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And now to continue, we're going to stay exactly with this thought because Paul in the next episode is going to expand on the relationship between science and politics in his talk to Remko van der Paas, who is a senior research fellow at the Institute of Tropical Medicine in Antwerp. So, yes, that's yeah. going to be this episode. We're really excited and we hope you're looking forward to listening to this episode. So sit back, maybe have a cup of tea and have fun. Have fun. Welcome everyone to today's episode of Pandemic Perspectives. Today we're discussing the relation between science and politics during the pandemic. Joining us today is a senior research fellow at the Institute of Tropical Medicine at Antwerp, Remco van der Paas. Thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. So before we dive into the specific role of, of science and politics in the pandemic itself, I would like to ask you, what is your take on on the, on the compatibility of science and politics. So it's interesting here that in the in the pandemic we do it, we there is a kind of a tendency to say look there is the, the the science and the facts that are now basically tracing the development of the pandemic and its scenarios, and then there's the evidence base that guides future activities and policies by states. So there's the scientists and there's a, there are the politicians. That's, that's the way how it's being portrayed in media or it's been understood. Well, there are several research schools or, 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 or thoughts about this, about what is science and what does it represent? And can you, can you distinguish it from societal, let's say, phenomena, including politics. And in, in Maastricht, and I'm also of that school, I, we, we are more from the social constructs, constructivist school of thought, which implies is that you cannot disentangle the two from each other. So they are intimately connected. They have different roles, perhaps, but science can only be is only functioning within a, let's say, an understanding about how societies, societies and its power relations work. So what science is and what evidence is and what information is, is very much shaped within that sphere. So what is political, what is politically then seen as evidence and what is not evidence, that is something that is constructed. Try to give an example. Why do virologists and epidemiologists, and I'm by training, I'm a medical doctor and public health physician, why do they get so much expertise, attention in the media these days? It's because they generate 
a certain type of evidence, right? Epidemiological evidence, they do forecasting, etc. And they explain pathophysiology of a virus and how it's how it mutates, for instance. That that has its validity, but that's not the only valid science that can guide political decisions. And that uh, other, let's say, scientific input, or rather, let's say, more broader knowledge on what makes sense during a pandemic, whether that more, that's more so, social knowledge or more knowledge related to uh, economic well-being of a, of a country or more sustainability uh, elements of things. For instance, I try to give an example. Do we have any idea about the environmental impact of all the all the plastic measurements that we're using at the moment. I think we take that very much for granted. So there is then a kind of a hierarchy, which kind of scientific evidence that we're, that's being used, and that hierarchy that is politically framed. And I think this is, it's not only now with the crisis, this is what happened in societies. So they're intimately connected. And I think we need to be much more honest about that, also in academia and that we're not completely fact-free or autonomous from the political powers. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you mentioned this interconnectedness between science and politics, because I've just read a paper by Dans von Egmont, and he said that, uh, or he claims also that science and politics have always been, or like for a long time now, have been quite closely connected to each other, especially the scientific advice in politics. But what he says is in times of crisis, so such as this pandemic, the role of science in policymaking processes becomes more apparent than in normal times or less controversial times. So you, you would agree with that, right? Yes, so there is, uh, there is many also ph philosophers and philosophers of science who reflect on that, also on the role of crisis and emergencies. We often refer to Michel Foucault, in, uh, in our work, who talks about the, let's say, the, the biopolitics of life and how that's being governed through, let's say, normal government institutions like hospitals and schools. And, and then also there, there is science that guides what is, uh, let's say, how to develop a curriculum or, or what is considered a disease and what's not. So we see that in, uh, in, in regular times. During a crisis, there is less, normally you have the, de the demo de democratic legitimacy process, right? Then there are several actors, there's a political actors, there's a scientific actors, there's civil society, there might, be, there might be economic actors. And then you deliberate on what will be proper actions to deal with a certain issue. Let's say... Um, nitrogen depletion in the ground. So you have a round table with several actors, and we're experts in that in the Netherlands, to, who then come to a kind of a consensus. And the scientists have one role. But during an emergency, there's a cross, what is it? There's a shortcut. There's no time, is then the knowledge to, to do this. So we need to rely on emergency, effective emergency action. And then suddenly the scientists the more the let's say the the medical scientists in this regard are being elevated as giving guidance what is the best for a, a government's um, response however the question is how how re representative this group of scientists then is yes they know about uh, epidemiology i know about epidemiology but i'm also the best to talk what's what's required from a more 
socio-ecological or from an um, inequity perspective. And I think that's what's happening. And because people, so then emergency situations are also the right moments to push through certain actions that normally are, have, let's say, are, they, they trigger more um, societal debate. And now people ex uh, accept them in a certain sense. Let me try to come up with an, with an example. I think the vaccine passport, it's the, that's, that's, an, that's, a, that's an interesting one. So we now, there's now whole proposals about the creation of a digital certificate to travel within Europe and beyond. Uh, you need to be vaccinated or you need to have a PCR test, etc. We do that because there is a pandemic and this should allow safe travels, right? But is there, the question is, is there real scientific evidence that such a passport work to reduce a pandemic? We'll know in the future. We'll know in the future, yes. So we only have the, the, we know we only have a certain science from how far the epidemic has, has developed so far, how effective vaccines are. So we, we have that current knowledge, but we don't have the upcoming knowledge in the future or the scenarios, what it would imply. But still politicians, because of this needs to have on one hand, open mobility of borders, but on the other hand, also control who is within those borders or not. They apply amount of scientific evidence to justify for the creation of a green certificate. And they take shortcuts without really having a deliberation at the national level or at the European level, whether that's really relevant or wanted by people. And the, the risk is, I think, on the long term, if people feel that it again, is it against their interests and whether it's Yeah. And my feeling is that it might increase existing inequities, because if you have the finances, if you're mobile, if you can pay for PCR tests, then you're in. And if you have, uh, if you are in a, a lower income person living in a, in a, in a let's say, in an urban um, environment with limited means also to, to understand all these concepts, then you don't have access to it. And I guess that's where there is so much vaccine hesitancy, they call it vaccine hesitancy. And that's where conspiracy theory comes in. People feel then, then with these kind of actions, because science is being applied in a rather restrictive way, according to the needs of the politicians at that moment, that's why it harms also the legitimacy of science. So we need to be, from my perspective, we need to be very careful how we let us be utilized. And I'd say this as a scientist, whether how we be utilized by 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 the politic discussion of the day so very much about the the framing of the of the politicians basically so as for example in germany also was from the start of public health above but basically everything so public health was the most important yeah goal here uh, as for many other governments in europe itself but the question is and you you address now this framing and which impacts it might have in society so dissatisfaction over time which we already see sometimes but what could a government maybe learn from that or how could they do it differently because there's also Others who say if you use too many perspectives, so instead of just focusing on virolo virologists, for example, first, but taking all kinds of like lawyers, virologists, uh, social experts, society experts, sorry, if you take all of them in a room and try to come to a conclusion or to action, it doesn't really work because they can't agree on anything. So don't governments kind of have to focus on some things first and then, yeah. And then go along. Yeah, they, they, they do. This is also their role of politics to channel the, the different 
political and societal perspectives and interests. That's a democratic process. And I think we, we can be glad in European member states that we have that to a certain extent, because it's not granted that uh, the liberative space need to be fought for and defended. Follows very much the, the theory of Jürgen Habermas, for instance, to, uh, to, to, cater, to nurture that. I do see the need that governments need to act swift and quickly, but they need to find a good balance between that effective action and on the other hand that it's being let's say that it's being met with trust by society and that several perspectives are also being at least accepted that they don't that you don't put them as way as being right or wrong per se and that's where it becomes difficult because then it's about leadership and channeling those perspectives and emotions and we need to learn that even within a pandemic, there needs to be space for that. But because we are isolated, we do this over Zoom and via Twitter and not in a, not in a kind of um, forum where we are together. But um, we, we, should be, we should resist always to take the, sh the shortcut and take the time that we do it end to end. And that we need to learn from this pandemic then as well and, uh, and, and have an open discussion about what went wrong, what went right. And I know that in, um, I, live in, I live in Berlin, huh? part-time. So I'm now calling you from Berlin. So I, my, my partner is a, is, a, is, a, is a general physician. So it's interesting for me to see that in Germany, the, the public health indicators per 100,000 population are quite leading and the testing and the, the, the medical data are leading in the, in the response. But public health outcomes, it's only one set of perspectives that guides the response. Public health is not, it's debatable whether health is the most important or the, whether heart security or a sense of security is important or the, are there softer indicators mental health, there's economic indicators, and there's all these actors with these underlying interests there. And as scientists, we need to learn that we can't exclude ourselves from that enjeu in French, from that interaction. It's part of an academic, from a societal debate. So part of my time is not to focus mainly on models and on writing excellent scientific papers or conducting rigid studies, but it's also to translate that evidence into what's relevant for society. And part of that is being part of a political debate. And we need to be open about that. And the political scientists, so political scientists who analyze that process are very valid then also in the, in the response. Now. And we hear them way too little. Yeah, you, you addressed how, how leading how leading in, in Germany the, the medical factors are. We, we, you addressed earlier in the beginning this, this demarcation process between science and politics sometimes. And especially a lot of the literature talks about the boundary effect. So we have this, we have this boundary between science and politics, right? Where we have certain factors or institutions such as national public health institutes, for example, who are trying to mediate between politics and science. So I have two small questions here. First of all, how, how well did this communication go? I, I know this, it, it depends on the case from, from the country, obviously, because there's different mm -hmm. kinds of public health institutes. What's the role of public health institutes in this? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, it's, um, so I know the Robert Koch Institute. I work myself at the Public Health Institute in Belgium. In an, in the Netherlands, it's um, the National Institute for Public Health and the Environment. What you see is that they, I think, all of them struggle with their, in their 
with their communication. And I find it also interesting to see how it differs from country that I have comparative advantages. Where in, uh, I think in, in Germany it's quite strict. They, uh, they, they had, there's a quite a bureaucratic strict communication. And I don't see so much scientists verging from that, let's say, Robert Koch Institute comes with a technical advice about what would be the best would be the best policy measures to reduce to, to reduce a coronavirus pandemic. And then I don't see so much a lot of people tweeting about that or scientists or leaders from the Robert Koch taking that position forward or talking about it in, in talk shows, etc. While in the Netherlands, in the Netherlands it's it's also the case, but they are they are invited. And they do express themselves already more in media, although I don't think they actually look for them, but they, in the Netherlands, the media is more, let's say they, they invite them everyone, the public, public radio and television, they invite the main virologists to, to give their opinion and expression, even to the extent I would say that it becomes quite irritating that each, uh, each uh, second day, uh, the TV uh, journal starts with a medical doctor or with a virologist who talks about this. The, so I don't, there's not, a, that's, there, there's not a real balance there as well. In Germany, of course, what is his name? Uh, um, Thorsten? Ah, Drosten. Oh, yeah, sorry. From childhood. He took a little bit of that role. So it's interesting to see the difference there. And it's also there a, a kind of a, a nuanced approach between communicating and on the other hand, engaging with the societal debate, but be a little bit restricted is needed. And in Belgium, <laughs> the, the Belgium, the virologists are very actively tweeting in the debate, etc. So it's, so it's very much also embedded in, uh, in, let's say, the social political culture and media landscape of the country. What I think is also interesting here at this, uh, talking about how, how scientists become more, more active, especially in Belgium, for example, in society, they're pretty much on the forefront, basically, of the debate, based, uh, you could say, maybe. We don't, as we addressed earlier, we don't usually see that in norm normal times, that scientists are so involved in, in deb debates, and usually they have this backstage role where they, they advise, where they conduct their studies, and usually address more of an expert uh, community uh, and less the public opinion. Do you think these, these lines, well, not these lines, but maybe the, 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 the roles between which science takes and which uh, politicians take or politics take get blurred a bit too much now so that science might, might become politicized and, and politics maybe be a bit too technocratic? So this is, uh, this is uh, uh, interesting. In the sense that, so we, with one of my Klingendal colleagues, we contributed to a paper on what's the role of the European Union in addressing the COVID-19 pandemic. What does a COVID-19 pandemic mean for the, for the European Union role in public health and global health? And that was a little bit the conclusion. So the, the, um, the scientific advice and uh, let's say the, what will be best from a public health perspective gets politicized. And uh, that's the securitization of health and the role of health professionals and scientists is, is, a, is an ongoing. We see that that has increased over the last 15 to 20 years. Huh? So try to give an example here as well. 
more and more international policy think tanks, they have scientists and health professionals on board. So my position, for instance, at the Klingendal Institute, which is an international relations group, would have been unthinkable 20 years ago because I've become part of the, let's say, this, the, the, the security and higher political, higher politics debate. So that's one side. So that's the whole securitization of health. The other side of it is that politicians who then need scientists to justify that phenomenon. They, they rely on scientists and let's say more the, or, or legal scholars to make more technocratic decisions without and avoiding the hard democratic uh, discussions on it. And politicians cannot outsource that function. They, they sometimes use scientists and scientists, I guess, are a little bit naive and being, and their ego is being flattered, etc., by by justifying certain political measures, and the, and politicians would then they somehow hide behind such um, such a technocratic approach. The hard way is a democratic way. It's the political debate, and the real political debate is about alternatives: whether or not to have lockdowns, whether or not to avoid money in. Uh, in, in hospitals or surveillance or testing or whether avoided in uh, employment benefits. It's a political debate, not a scientific debate. And, and that, this is where at this mo the, during this emergency time, it goes, we give way too much weight to the, to the role of scientists in that regard. And I think the scientists should push back and say, look, guys, this is politics. We can be part of the political debate, but that's the right place where this is being, where this should be kept. And with political debate, I do not only mean within parliaments or in government, but I mean societal debates. I hear way too little well-facilitated public debates about what to do during lockdowns and post-corona. Everyone is communicating via, via, via the media and via tweeting, etc. But the real forum political democratic forum it's it's, uh, it's uh, i'm amazed there's really a gap there how could how could such a forum look like in in today's world because it's quite yeah, difficult isn't it yeah so i know a lot of public health fora in um, that uh, that uh, there are interestingly outside europe we have much better public there's much more like in thailand and in uh, brazil but partly also in, uh, in Scandinavian countries, they have very good public health fora, but there have been some, due to austerity, they have been somewhat eroded in, in Western European countries. And I would also say that there, in general, and this is besides Corona, uh, there is this kind of tendency to, 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 let's say, to rely more on the, the scientific facts than on the, than on the debate. Se. So there's this whole, so there's less demand in society also for such um, such forum, but we 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 need to re-democratize that part. At least my that can be done uh, via via uh, via internet platforms etc. Like we like we talk now. That is, but this would be my this is my main worry uh, for uh, for the pandemic is that we 
start to erode democratic space and uh, let's say the acceptance of different visions and minority visions within our society for the greater sake of, of public health outcomes. Yeah, that's, that's also a phenomenon that could, could, be, could be observed basically, this radicalization of different opinions. Uh, and I think there's also a lot of talk about these different bubbles. So like liberal bubble or conservative bubble, uh, which, which came up more recently and which uh, exactly addresses what you, you just talked about, I think. But I mean, what we're talking about right now is that there is a lack of a substantial debate about democratization and science. But let's shift maybe the focus to uh, an example like Brazil at, at the moment, for example, where there's apparently, at least from the perspective of like a European right now, a lack of, of scientific acknowledgement in general from at least the political elite around Bolsonaro. Um, so maybe how could, how can this be explained that, okay, maybe in the beginning, there were quite a lot of governments that ignored it and were like, okay, no, we, we don't really need science. It's only, it's going to be, it's going to pass. But now that it's progressed so much and that there's been so many death, deaths uh, in, in, in Brazil, why is that still this ignorance and how can, and how can maybe science contribute to, to, in Brazil also to, to, gap, yeah, to bridge that, that gap that is apparently there between science and politics. Yeah, that's because you, so you, so between, so the, to start with between science and politics, I think they are already, they're more intertwined than we, so I don't know whether that's really between science and politics. There are different actors, scientific actors and political actors, and they interrelate with each other. So I wouldn't make it such a dichotomy between one or the other. That's, but that's, that's so at least from, from that vision, because I, I mean, there are epidemiologists and public health scientists who do make very much the case in, in, in Brazil for harder lockdown, understanding of the aerosols, need to vaccinate, etc. And the Bolsonaro um, government is, is having another vision. My, I mean, the Bolsonaro government also relies on a certain type of scientist for that vision. And the scientists do also work with certain politicians to get their perspective being pushed forward. And that's where, so if you say the scientists, it's, I guess there's a, what a group of scientists could do in, in Brazil is to convince to the, to the, political and, and, and social channels that they, that Bolsonaro's uh, way, government of doing things should be, should be altered, whether that's with upcoming elections or whether just to, but this is where hard power, and I mean, where hard power then comes in, and now you're talking about Brazil. So did you see that shooting in, uh, uh, I think two, three weeks ago, where about 25 gang members were shot in a favela in, in Rio de Janeiro, I think. So Bolsonaro's reaction is then, yes, but I, I do matter. I do work with security. You, tell, you say, you tell me that I'm not working on security or public health security, but see, I'm dealing with all the crime related insecurity. So I use my military forces to, to shot all those, all those gang members. So one issue, a public health issue on security isn't being taken, reframed, 
and say, okay, but I, I, I ensure security in another way. You can rely on me. So that's a kind of a distraction tactic from politics to do that. And what scientists then do is that they keep on hammering on the public health aspects. They say, okay, Bolsonaro should vaccinate, etc. But are they also willing to speak out about the illegitimate action that the president did, that he shut down um, all those members in a favela? So are scientists willing to speak out beyond their own uh, borders? Are they able to step beyond their own field of confidence and speak also more about values? And I think this is where, where we should... I, am, I have scientific expertise and knowledge, but I'm also a citizen. I'm technically a citizen of the Netherlands, but I consider myself a cosmopolitan citizen in many regards, which means that I also have a responsibility to... to voice my on values and on on worldviews beyond a mere narrow uh, scientific expertise because i am in the very fortunate position because of all the public finance that went into my education etc into my work i'm in a fortunate position to to voice i have space i can i can in the news media, etc and that a lot of scientists don't do it and they only talk about their own limited part when it fits to their needs and don't want to speak up or support, let's say, when people call for solidarity when it comes to access to education or malnutrition or when such a violence happens. I think this is where people say, well, but this is enough. You talk only about your virology part, but when it comes to hard security issues and we're surviving here, you're stay out. And that's so... So the linkage between on one hand recognizing that you have a scientific role, on the other hand, we are citizens and we have also a societal role. We're part of a social contract and we have an active duty to participate in it. So this, I think this is where, where it goes wrong. And I guess that's, that's is a, that, I think that, that should be stressed more and more. We have a duty as scientists, a responsibility to be part of the societal debate. Um, but I mean, that's that that counts basically for every citizen, right? That that, that we all have to, because that's yes. because that's what I what I'm wondering right now. What do you mean then with scientists should speak up? Do you mean um, publicly, like in on, on on TV, for example? I don't know because they are experts and sometimes invited. Or do you mean with normal demonstrations and so on? Because maybe maybe a lot of scientists are already doing that. And then maybe the critique can't really be, be taken. Yes, so speaking up on television, but then you're, you're invited as expert or in a demonstration, then you're part of, an, uh, of a certain movement, etc. That's all well, but it's too actively engaged in, in a debate at the local level, at the, at the regional, maybe at the national level, and to, uh, to be an active citizen. And that citizen role, that is being undermined over the years. That's not being really harnessed. We're not really being trained about it. I'm a, I've never heard about it in my medical profession, how it is to be a, what would be my role as a medical doctor within society? Yes, individual vis-a-vis -vis patients, a lot. But on my social role? Uh-uh. And I think this is where we, where there needs to be awareness in universities at educational level, that that's something to, it's, it's political education on the new role of scientists in, uh, in very fast-changing uh, societies. 
because a large part of the population start to really lose their trust in science. They, the science, and I, I don't think that people, and I, I, if I'm talking with colleagues about this, I don't think that people understand this well enough, that just doing the data crunching and doing your models on based on limited variables, that has some, that has some merit, but just staying in your ivory tower and hoping that your, your research grants will arrive, that's, that's not the way to move forward. That's not a very responsible role in my vision. But that's the way how it's been constructed over the last 20 to 30 years. And a lot of scientists do are afraid because they feel if they speak up, they lose their job and they use their research grants. It's also, so this is where the construct is towards me, that a lot of, that the people who speak now up on, uh, on, on what to do, the ones that you see on television as well, are the ones who have a, let's say, a vision that it's more in line, that is more or less aligned with what fits with the vision of of uh, the main political actors. Hmm? It's very that's it's very well palatable. And what is needed is that we allow for a diversity of voices, and that minority voices are probably being catered for, because on the long term, that's how science works. Science is uncertainty. Good scientists know that. That's yeah. not it's a hard truth. Scientists realize that a lot of things are uncertain and they need to acknowledge that. And to talk through that thematically and then even in times of a pandemic, make choices and, and, and also be clear about the alternatives. Say, look, this is one choice, but there might also be A and B and then that might be the consequences. That's, that's our role. But then again, in, with, 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 I mean, we're talking now for 45 minutes. That's in times of, of tweeting. And I've been on, 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 on media as well. You get one, two minutes time to speak up. And that's it. This is, so it's a culture that the younger generation need to try to break open and seek for alternatives. That's why, student, that's why student matters and student fora and platforms and trying to find alternative ways are so important. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you just mentioned it, that it's also up to us now, to, to the younger generations to work on that. But I mean, that's also what, what we're all experiencing, this, this kind of attitude, like, it's my opinion. And if you don't accept my opinion, I don't want to listen to your opinion, basically. Yeah, because I think most people who are commenting under, under certain posts uh, often just want to voice their, their own opinion. And then they just either want support or they just... Yeah, they're hostile, basically, quite fast. Uh, so that's a development I think everyone can see if they just look. And, uh, and it's really problematic. Uh, but maybe that's, that's also a good transition to, to the conclusion then. What is the future of science and, and politics, maybe, like the, the relation? So how maybe, let's talk post-pandemic, will, how will the relation progress? Do we see science stepping back again and being like, as uh, Egmont said, normal and like in normal times in the background? Or is it, is it going to be more active now? Oh, the no. The emergency will be permanent or will be framed permanently because after the COVID crisis, there's no back to normal. There is the, there's a, the, 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 the looming uh, chronic climate crisis ahead of us. Uh, not to mention the whole socio-economic crisis and instability, mainly also in uh, in lower-income settings. 
And that this expert role uh, for scientists and the power affiliated with that is now on the forefront. I don't think that people would like to let go of that so easily. And it, it is very comfortable for politicians then as well. Try to give an example outside COVID, outside public health. The economic crisis in 2008 in the Eurozone and how it was managed afterwards, which was modeled true, was left to a large part to the advices of uh, economic experts, huh? economic scientists and the technocrats at the, the what is it, the European Central Bank and other places to, to decide what's best for the economic reforms of a certain country. We have seen that with Greece, for instance. The Greek made another political choice and basically because of technocratic and, and scientific reasons that was being shut down. Basically, it was said there is no alternative. And I think the same will happen with, uh, with COVID-19. That uh, it's like, okay, there will be no alternative. We need to deal with vaccine passports. We need to agree to certain political, to certain public health measures, face masks, etc. Vaccination will become a permanent thing. And scientists, because it gives them status and finance and influence, they will agree with it. But that it just closed down any political alternatives is from a democratic perspective, again, really a problem. So basically what we, or what you elaborated on earlier, um, we need this increased debate then again, we need to listen more carefully also to minority groups um, to, to really balance it out a bit. Yeah, we need to balance it out and we need to, I think as citizens, we need to agree that scientific expertise is just one of the expertise and the functions. Citizens' knowledge, different of opinion, bottom-up approaches may, may, may are very valid as well. And I, I say this also because there are many historical examples where scientific expertise have led to, to, to disasters because it was disconnected from, from underlying values and, uh, and, and social developments. It justified, justified many uh, uh, destructive uh, developments in Germany, but we see it also with the development of nuclear technology and the bomb, etc. There's many, many reasons why science has been applied to justify uh, inequities and oppression. And so there's a real risk that that happens again. And we need to be on our guard. And the younger generation, students need to, to look at the older generations and hold them accountable for it. That's why, for me, teaching is, is for what this exchange matters so much. Don't you don't rely necessarily on the on the old way of doing things and how we and, and on on how let's say what is good or bad science and what it means that, that that's a given that can change i mean basically we we can talk about that we need a, a reform maybe also of our academic academic system right i mean of schools might might need a new role but also um universities might have to take a new role in teaching i mean well, in my, okay, in, in my, but this is my critique of the problem-based learning model in, uh, in Maastricht, amongst others. Are you, are, is it allowed for you to agree to disagree? Can you work with discontent? Can you work with, with uh, alternative visions? I'm not so sure. A lot of the, a lot of the, 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 the education focus on problem solving and coming to a consensus. And in the end, 
how much alternatives are there in your group work? Um, can you can you agree on that's okay? This part of the group thinks that this is the best perspective and way of do, doing things. The other part of the group thinks this universities and this 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 is intriguing in our liberal environment where where you can have different opinions um, a lot of the group work and students i see they come up with the same things that is because we are we are being forced or students are being forced to walk across a certain line and perform across a certain vision and come up with a certain degree and when they graduate that they enter into the into the job market and perform in a certain way, and that that really that really is allowed to to be to be shaken up and challenged a little bit, and that's why they claim that space, claim discontent, claim conflict rather than because where we're going now with our uh, the way we structure our economies and economic economic growth and what we do with the planet, we are we are heading for disaster, and that's. That so that requires um, that really requires to be shaken up. Okay, <laughs> that's that's a tough vision for the future. Yeah, I know, but, but that's a lot to do. yeah. yeah I so hope we, you're able, I hope that you find find way that that's to be debatable and discussed with your with your fellow students. Yeah, I, I feel I feel like um, also what you just said with this no compromise or not no compromise, but this this, this agree to disagree is also because science is is always seen as as it needs to provide this one truth, you know, like it needs yeah. to provide a, a perfect answer. So yeah, I think that's that's also part of the problem. That not I wouldn't say the the, the yeah the problem-based learning, but definitely this this sense a lot of people have that science is truth and only one truth, basically. Well, but there is there is really this is a paradox of science science. Science is about uncertainty. Ask scientists to give them one straight answer, and we should not fall in that trap. I think that's a really good note to to end this uh, this episode. Thank you so much uh, for for joining uh, in today's episode uh, on science and politics. Uh, it was great talking to you, and yeah, uh, thank you very much. Thank you.